listening to the Risk Management Podcast, hosted by Rex Chatterjee. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode six of the Risk Management Podcast, hosted by me, Rex Chatterjee. Before we dive into this episode, I want to give a quick shout out and thank you to everyone who has given us a review, a like, a follow, subscribe, etc. And we really sincerely appreciate the support. Now, without further ado, let's get into it for today. Our coverage on this episode focuses on three broad themes. The first of which, of course, is the Omicron variant to COVID-19. The second is digital and cybersecurity threats to value coming from both a cloud resource downtime perspective and a cybersecurity breach perspective of key critical vendors. And then finally, moving into physical security again with two components, the first of which focuses on the recent spate of highly organized, what they call quote unquote flash mob robberies affecting nationwide retailers. And the second, a more nuanced look at the specific threats and potential threats to the physical security of employees, not specifically at the workplace, but on their way to and from the workplace as a result of a recent uptick in robberies, muggings, and thefts targeting personal property. All right, so turning to our first topic, which is the threat of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. So we won't belabor the point here. There's news articles being published you know, on the almost hourly basis. You can check our Twitter feed where we are consistently sharing some of the latest and breaking details. And generally speaking, wherever you get news, I'm sure the content will reach you. With that being said, with the specific applications to business and the things that businesses need to be aware of, that's where we come in. And I guess at the outset, it's important for us to note for all of you that we are taking the threat posed by Omicron very, very seriously. There's been coverage in the media referencing scientific sources, everything being early and still being tested out, to say that Omicron, while being likely much more highly transmissible than Delta or the original COVID, may not pose as big of a risk to individual health and safety. Cases may not be as severe. Our perspective in terms of just prudent risk management is to treat it as though cases will be at least as severe until we have dispositive proof that they won't be. And at this time, it being, you know, the 8th of December, 2021, no such proof exists. And so in thinking about this, we are going to be treating this as though this is perhaps Delta all over again. It would take us way too long to list out all of the countries and advisories and bans for travel that exist presently what we can and will do is link you in the show notes to this episode to the resources that we trust and look to for the latest information, um, the CDC, obviously, and several others. But simply having the information isn't enough, right? It's necessary, but it's not entirely sufficient to actively manage uh, risk around Omicron. And the thing that we are most concerned with here specifically with respect to the Omicron variant as opposed to the others is what we have you know, read and seen to be the high rate of transmission of this particular strain. And so we're worried about infections that take out, you know, entire offices or entire teams, right? And the disruptions, I mean, the, the individual employee health considerations aside, right? Those come first and foremost. But when we talk about risks to business specifically, when you have an entire team of people that's, that's out sick having, you know, cross-infected one another, the impacts to business will be palpable. And if anything... What Omicron kind of shows us is that the threat of COVID and the risks it posed to business may not simply just all of a sudden go away. We may be dealing with this in bursts and spates 
for quite some time. And so what we're going to talk about here, we feel strongly and advocate should be reflected in companies' policies and procedures and their training and their culture. And so the first thing we want to talk about here is protocols for in-office work. When companies are aware, when they become aware that there is an ongoing threat or an emergent threat, being able to quickly emplace or re-emplace certain protocols for the way in which employees work in offices is going to be vital. And that might be anything from having folks wear masks to and from or even inside the office, rotations of staff in the office. And something that we feel is essential is, to the extent possible, avoiding cross-exposure and as tough as this is to say, between members of individual teams, right? So because we're talking about a risk that is born out of physical proximity, having individuals who have overlapping or perhaps redundant capacity to deliver value all being co-located eliminates the benefit of that redundancy. And so what I mean by this is you've got, you know, let's say three people, each of whom could operate the company's social media accounts and keep the marketing strategies running. If all three people come down with Omicron, then that's a problem, right? So when thinking about rotating staff in and out of the office, it's important to separate as tough as that is to say, because generally separating folks is not a good way to collaborate. But, you know, moving the collaboration virtual instead of in person to folks on the same teams or having the same functions or the same skills so that from the business's perspective, you aren't exposed to having every single person at the company who can do this one thing be out at the same time, unfortunately. Rotation of staff in office, it has to be done in an intelligent and sort of informed way. And this means, you know, bringing in key stakeholders from HR, unit level management, et cetera, to really identify where your dependencies are. Mapping of dependencies in and of itself is an essential risk function that all companies should ideally perform. But, you know, look, it's it's not something that is generally top of mind for business leaders focused on growth and on driving, you know, net income, right? But ultimately, in cases like this, those types of things would be really great to have. But given the entire spectrum of challenges facing businesses today, uh, of which COVID is just one and perhaps a compounding effect, you know, it, it's going to be difficult, I would say, for businesses to undertake such a large project, which is in many ways kind of, it's kind of like saying, you know, you want to repair your roof in the summer, not the winter, because in the winter, it's when you need it. And in many ways right now, what we're in is a winter and having a mapping of key dependencies of functions and personnel is the repaired roof that, you know, it's important to try to patch it when we can now. Doing it fully would be great, but ultimately it is a necessary and essential step in risk management for businesses that, you know, all companies should consider. Moving on, and the thing that really concerns us about Omicron is business travel. To take kind of a step back, right, the world emerging from COVID is keen on re-engaging with travel. With the high transmissibility of Omicron, we can't necessarily agree that that is a wise or reasonable business move to make specifically. It's important to create monitoring functions accessing and reviewing the relative resources that are published by the CDC, by the WHO, etc., and having an intelligent and informed way to parse the information they receive. So there's two elements here. Number one, you can't be getting data from the notification from, let's say, CNN that pops up on your phone saying, hey, the CDC just added four countries to the list. Not sufficient and not an appropriate way to manage risk for a business. 
having a policy and procedure where a member of staff looks at the list on an ongoing and regular basis, compiles a report and circulates it to management stakeholders via email, that is a defensible and active and proactive measure of risk management. That's one thing. But then once you've got the information and got it distributed, parsing it, analyzing it, and figuring out the relative implications for your individual business is an entirely other step, right? And that's where, you know, on things like mapping dependencies to parsing information like this, it's where having risk management trained personnel or hiring consultants, as a plug here, Titan Gray is the consultancy that I operate and is a producer of this podcast. But, you know, any any one of us that are active in this space would be a resource in this case in terms of helping to parse that data and figure out directly its applications to the business travel program active within a business, right? And so the, the first thing that's really important is, is figuring out the extent to which business travel is necessary for the continuity of business operations. And I would hazard a guess that in most cases and for most businesses outside of those, obviously in the travel sector, there are many functions for which travel is deployed that virtual meeting and virtual teleconference, et cetera, can be substituted. And while, you know, to use uh, colloquial language here, while it sucks, to have to revert back to doing video conferences when you'd rather be attending an actual conference. Ultimately, the information that we've received thus far has us feeling that it is better in this case to be safe than sorry. And we are by by no means would we say that for just anything, right? Like we understand fully that certain risks are tolerable um, and necessary. But however, with respect to Omicron and business travel, it is one that we simply at this point, given the information that is available to us, uh, not something that we can get behind or recommend. In cases, however, where business travel is necessary or a business deems that it is appropriate and proper to travel, there's several sort of considerations to keep in mind, right? Number one is having, obviously business travel gets planned, COVID spikes do not function according to any human plan. So making sure that as travel dates approach, that a manager or someone is checking in with the latest risk information with respect to CDC data, WHO data, et cetera, and mapping that versus planned travel to make sure that, you know, executives and personnel of a company aren't literally taking a plane into a hot zone or what may likely become a hot zone. However, the other issue and the perhaps more uncomfortable but realistic consequence of spikes and outbreaks is quarantines, lockdowns, and travel bans that can occur while personnel are abroad. And so it's it's not so much to say even that the biggest risk is going to a place and there being an outbreak there. It is then what happens afterwards. So if you have important work to be done, meetings to be conducted, frankly, just operating out of home base that needs to happen, let's say next week, but this week you have to travel to a jurisdiction and you, you know, make the decision to engage in that travel. The consequences shouldn't just stem from, oh, well, what if I get exposed to COVID or come down with COVID while on that travel and potentially bring it home, et cetera. I mean, quarantining can fix that and that should almost definitely be reemplaced, even if not mandated from a public health standpoint from a private sector standpoint, but the kinds of stresses, hazards, disruptions to business and value that occur when an emergency travel ban is placed, that lockdowns and other measures that are similar uh, could occur not just you know in uh, our domestic region, but also in jurisdictions to which 
folks travel getting stuck, so to speak. And, and mind you, the ways in which governments, especially the U.S. government, has handled uh, these issues in, in the past has been commendable. And look, we don't think folks are just going to get randomly stuck abroad. But again, that's not something we're prepared to rep because we don't exactly know the nature of this variant threat. With that being said, the likely scenario is not that somebody would get stuck abroad, but it's really just the disruption of having to to refigure travel in a time when cross the board, right? Folks are having to refigure travel. This is just simply an area that is easily avoided. And in many ways, what we're here to do is advise businesses on adequately, objectively weighing the very real risks versus the perceived benefits. And finally, the thing we'll say and say and say until we're blue in the face is the importance of a business continuity plan. And while companies quickly learned about the importance of creating work from home setups, you know, that evolved for the better in in many, in most cases, I would say, uh, over the course of the pandemic, those being only one element of a true business continuity plan and having a fulsome plan built in with redundancies of functions and assumptions about how risk will manifest and various use cases for the various ways in which risks can impact the business either as a whole or certain units, segments, employee populations within it. These are all considerations to take into account. And in order to take a business continuity plan and have it be really effective, it's likewise important to create around it various policies, procedures, and also to conduct training for employees on how and in what format they'll be messaged to, on what basis, giving them an understanding of who within the organization is responsible for tracking and managing threats and relaying information on a timely and as needed basis, and really just getting folks familiar the plan or the various plans and how the ongoing practices of the business may need to change rather quickly given you know a spike in Omicron whether in the city, the office building, or within the offices itself of, you know, a given company. The more fluent that employees can be in this language and this lexicon, and specifically the more accustomed to and, you know, at the fingertips this information is for folks within a business, the less significant a disruption to business and to ongoing enterprise value will be. And, you know, if the cost of this is you know, relatively low in terms of dollars as, you know, these tasks tend to be and in terms of hours, maybe an hour or two within a given work week of, of training and discussion weighed against the potential disruptions to business from a disorderly transition back into a work from home setup or, you know, into a rotating office setup, etc. When you look at it from a high level, dollars and cents, black and white, it is clear what the right thing to do here is. And in many ways, part of the mission of this podcast, part of what we do at Titan Gray is illustrate this day in, day out for the benefit of businesses, our clients. So that on Omicron was the big topic we had to cover today. And now moving on. So let's talk about the Amazon server downtime issue. And so today, uh, the 8th of December, 2021, and uh, yesterday, 
Amazon reported certain outages on its Amazon Web Server platforms. This affected not just Amazon internally with respect to its delivery and logistics operations, but also with respect to clients who use Amazon Web Services to host their various platforms. And these aren't just small companies. We're talking about you know the, the Disney Plus network, uh, Netflix, Coinbase, etc., across a variety of sectors. And so the relative risks with respect to enterprise value and also with respect to compliance uh, with various rules and regulations affecting certain businesses uh, all comes into play here. So what we would like to focus on here is the idea of using a cloud for the management of data and key IT dependencies. And so from a customer facilitation standpoint, obviously having server downtime and losing business is problematic to say the least, right? But the interesting and kind of nuanced part about uh, server downtime issues is that they are asymmetric, meaning like, so let's say we've got three competitors here. We've got Netflix, Hulu, and uh, Disney Plus, for instance. So it is possible and perhaps entirely likely that these services, while being direct competitors of one another, are hosted on uh, separate cloud-based providers, servers, et cetera. So when you have downtime issues that affect one provider versus another, you then subsequently have follow-on risks that affect, logically speaking, the customers of the affected provider while not affecting the customers of the not affected provider. And so just to flag this as an asymmetric risk, right? Um, a risk that could cause consumers to either adopt a competitor's product in a pinch if it's a you know quickly consumed product like a streaming service for instance or if it is a service for an essential good or product which then a downtime creates a loss of consumer confidence and therefore enterprise value these are risks which need to be accounted for and so it's important from a manager perspective in in this case to fully understand the terms of the commercial arrangements which companies may have with their cloud and IT you know, service providers in this case to fully understand their rights and remedies in the event of a downtime. And this should be done on a proactive basis, not a reactive basis. You know, but of course, like it's not as though a company's legal team is going to say, oh, well, it's Tuesday. I better go review my cloud services contract because that's what I do on every Tuesday. No, that's not the pace of business. And that's not the way in which uh, organizations, even legal organizations within companies uh, or outside law firms think necessarily. Right. And so there needs to be an impetus behind the review and memorialization of these terms and remedies and frankly operating procedures that live in the practices of a business not just within the let's say legal risk and compliance organization if such exists within a company but also within the IT and data services and related frontline or midline functions that uh, facilitate the company's performance of its obligations to its customers so in terms of itemizing and cataloging risk, that's an extremely important step. Now, in terms of management of that risk, you know, that is an entirely separate conversation that we will cover on an upcoming deep dive episode. However, what we can say now is it's important to have the appropriate IT resources aware and in place to manage these key dependencies, um, even if it's Amazon or even if it's Google or some, you know, massive company that you know seems to rule and dominate the internet what the aws server downtime issue has shown us in this instance is that it's not appropriate in this case clearly to assume that cloud services and cloud servers will have 
uptime and simply just put that matter to bed as though you were assuming the sun will rise tomorrow. From a risk management perspective, even those assumptions, as unlikely as they are to be untrue, merit being tested and merit having mitigants in place of various forms and functions, which we'll cover on a, on a later episode, in place, cataloged, itemized, and actionable in the event that, in this case, the unthinkable does, in fact, happen. Moving on to the latest in cybersecurity breach news, in this case, GoDaddy suffered a massive data breach. As reported by TechCrunch and linked to us in our, in our links and mentions, the data on 1.2 million customers may have been accessed by hackers. The company detected unauthorized access to its systems, where it hosts and manages its customers' WordPress servers, right? And so WordPress, again, powering something. I mean, last time I checked, it was 34% of the internet, but I think at this point, time of this recording, it's probably higher than that. This is a an absolutely, I should caveat that, WordPress itself um, claims that it powers, uh, you know, 34 or more percent of the internet. Those sites hosted on GoDaddy, uh, I'm not prepared to say that's a plurality of them or a majority of them, but it is a large proportion of them as well. GoDaddy being the massive hosting provider that it is. So how was the hack conducted? It was actually a compromised password. And this is frankly shocking, right? Because you think of compromised password hacks, you're picturing someone who's just you know, has their password written on the back of a post-it carelessly. But that's not, right, the the real nature of this threat. Even um, fairly advanced users, uh, if not following industry best practices, and sometimes even if following best practices can be compromised, their access credentials can be compromised using phishing and other techniques like that. These groups and, and hackers that are employing these tactics are only getting more and more sophisticated. It's on a daily basis that we review threats that, uh, frankly, an email looks like it's from Google, but it's just one character off or in sometimes not even. And, you know, phishing scams are potent, right? They're, they're widely deployed for these purposes of compromising credentials, uh, among other ways. I don't necessarily know if this uh, GoDaddy hack was, uh, if the password was compromised through, through a phish, but the hacker gained access on um, September 6th. The breach was discovered on November 17th. So then in and of itself, right? So you've got um, unauthorized access. That's a problem, but also taking two two months and then some, right, to find out about the attack, to discover the intrusion on the network and the possibility of compromised credentials, that's problematic as well. And so when we're talking about the kind of data that was actually compromised here, we're talking about SFTP credentials, which allow, you know, for file transfers up and down to a server, uh, usernames and passwords for WordPress databases, which is the entire, you know, mid end of a website, SFTP being the, the, the back end, you know, you're also talking about exposure of SSL certificates, which are the private keys that basically secure websites and, and verify the identity and authenticity of a website. So in what this can do and what this can be used for is to trick um, would-be users of an e-commerce website, for instance, to enter their credit card information into a site where it's not processing a transaction. It's, in fact, piping that data out to a hacker. And if you talk about some of the largest websites that do, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions uh, a day, that's hundreds of thousands of credit card information that could be captured again in that time span, right? And so this was relatively major in terms of its scope and breadth and significant with respect to the actor that was affected. 
And so, again, this is a point that we will cover in a longer deep dive episode with industry voices at the tip of the spear when it comes to cybersecurity to discuss the ways in which businesses can, and this is the underscored part here, actively monitor for these threats, right? So it's not, again, enough to say that, oh, because we use company X as our provider for these core IT, uh, cloud server, hosting, et cetera, services that we need, that we depend on to be able to provide value for our customers, the companies that provide these services to us are behemoths that we can simply rely on the fact that they are so big that they are you know, too big to be hacked or too big to fail. What we'll say at this quick take juncture is that simply relying on a company's or a vendor's, in this case, size and stature within an industry is not a valid risk management tool unto itself. Uh, it can be helpful and informative. However, as we'll explore more on a subsequent deep dive, core risk management functions need to be brought to bear on even these vendor relationships. Now, with respect to retail robberies, turning on to our uh, physical security theme of this quick take, retail robberies have been on the rise as of the last two, perhaps even three months. We have links in our show notes here to coverage of flash mob robberies, basically um, organized mass robberies at retailers across the nation from, you know, a Nordstrom in San Francisco to a Louis Vuitton boutique in Chicago and so on and so forth. What these crimes evidence, first of all, they're occurring in a pattern and with groups of unconnected actors, they are group actors. And so you have an, a level of organization to the crime, but it's not as though you have one organization perpetuating these crimes in San Francisco and in Chicago and in, let's say, Miami or New York. These are isolated and separate groups, but the the motif, so to speak, here is that these robberies and threats to value to retail operators are on the rise. So what are the impacts of business? Let's think about this for a second. One, and this has been cited in one of the articles we have linked, it was the CEO of Best Buy, right, who commented that it's more difficult to hire workers, which is extremely interesting and, and a very sharp point to bring up, right? That in the middle of this great resignation, it is extremely difficult to find uh, personnel right now for a variety of functions and levels of work. And employees at companies are resigning in ways in, in numbers in which they, they perhaps have not before, right? So in the midst of all this, now you have, if you are like a retailer looking for store associates or managers, et cetera, now you've got candidates thinking, well, you know, look, this is a lovely place to work, but this is also a place that's a target for a robbery. And I don't want to be here and potentially harmed physically or, you know, what have you should something like that occur, right? It's a compounding problem in that sense that it's not just the direct and cognizable threat to value that is, oh, well, if I get robbed, I lose stuff and the stuff costs me money to buy its inventory. And so I've lost money. No, it's much more than that. It's also affecting your labor and employment operations, your your people operations in this case. But of course, right, there is that direct economic loss. So you've got inventory loss, right? You've probably got insurance to cover that. But again, another risk management tool and tactic we would suggest is reviewing those contracts and reviewing the coverage scopes, policy limits, et cetera. But moreover, you've also got the potential for store damage as well, displays, signage, et cetera, that may get damaged that needs to be replaced. You've also got downtime while those replacements are happening. You've got a potentially lower customer experience and you're used to delivering 
during such replacement times or such recoupment times. Again, you've got lack of availability of stock because of inventory theft and in a time when there's a supply chain crisis, you know, and especially at higher end boutiques, it's just not so simple to be able to say, okay, well, we need to replace, you know, 50 handbags from Louis Vuitton, let's say, that were stolen. They may not be available, right? And so customers that are looking to buy that specific product may have to look elsewhere. It's a loss of business and reputation. And again, because these threats are asymmetric, you're, you know, let's say Nordstrom and you get robbed in a certain location. Well, if the customer really wants that bag, the likelihood of them buying a different bag from you, Nordstrom, versus going down the road to unaffected Neiman Marcus and buying the bag from them is, you know, that's what they're probably going to do, right? And so customer retention and maintenance of customer confidence in the business is a, a major area of threat, right? Or it's at at risk. It's it's being threatened by the fact that there are these these robberies. And so, and then again, not to mention the last but not least of which is the administrative costs, and both in terms of time spent, but also in terms of the workload on probably an already stressed out population of human capital, your your key employees, who have to deal with the administration of insurance claims and the related extra work so to speak, to get the ship back on its keel, to get things back up and running again. So what are the ways in which directly, meaning points of action that businesses can take to at least present themselves as a harder target for a mass retail robbery? And so number one is perhaps the most logical, and it's the engagement of private security. Again, there are ways in which to integrate private security in a way that while being a strong risk management measure, nevertheless, do not so significantly intrude on the overall service offering of a business. This is something that we hear not just in the physical security space, but also in a variety of other spaces that certain risk management measures can detract from the overall customer experience. And I think in this case, you know, a balanced approach truly is necessary. And there are ways in which to have security officers, guards, etc. within a retail location that are tasked and, you know, Again, it's essential that these folks are properly trained as well um, and have strong familiarity with a vetted and verified standard SOP, an SOP that is maybe socialized with local law enforcement agencies so as to make the collaboration and cooperation between private and public sectors, in this case, very, very seamless and reactive and expedient. But so an increase in private security, but also taking into account the needs of a business to create a seamless customer experience that is both possible and in this case, essential. But as I just alluded to, you know, engagement, local law enforcement agencies, and potentially even hiring law enforcement officers as details from the agencies. And so, you know, the San Francisco, I believe it's the sheriff's office uh, out there has promulgated a program in New York City, I think it's rather common at certain retailers to have details as well. But law enforcement agencies at certain levels will, in some respect, may, I shouldn't say will, may uh, have programs through which um, actual law enforcement officers can be hired out through uh, by businesses or by organizations to provide an added layer of security, of course, with the stepped up powers that law enforcement officers have that private security guards do not have, and the stepped up deterrent to opportunistic criminals as well. Again, these are, while planned in many ways, are, are crimes of, of opportunity, right? It's when a, a target is soft and less defended that it can be hit by um, a mass robbery. It can be hit successfully, right? So it's not as though these folks are saying, I need to hit this Nordstrom because the, the thing that I need is in there. It's like Nordstrom's an easy target, so I'm going to hit them, right? But if they're a harder target, but someone else is an easier target, well, then I don't need to hit those guys, right? It's it's not a good opportunity. And you know, furthermore, even if um, hiring out a law enforcement detail might not be an appropriate strategy for a certain business, for a cost perspective or what have you, 
nevertheless, it's a firm belief of ours that law enforcement agencies, you know, do care about crime prevention, obviously. And in a large number of ways, and in more ways than perhaps a lot of business owners think, will interface constructively with business owners and members of the community in order to share data, tactics, and techniques, procedures, etc., that these folks can take and in place within their homes, families, businesses, in the case of what we're talking about here, to seamlessly interact with law enforcement and for the purpose of deterring crime, right? And so, you know, the thing that really comes to mind here is threat intelligence, right? And so law enforcement agencies in their various localities oftentimes have the one of the best sources of intelligence of like what is brewing, so to speak, and would be in the best position, if it's at all possible, to predict or understand the relative likelihoods of certain crimes being committed, where, when, by whom. Again, there's never any guarantee and there's never any real certainty here, but if there were information that would be useful to businesses, law enforcement agencies have at least some of it. And so collaborating on threat intelligence and things like that is something that businesses at really all levels should look into. Furthermore, conducting training with staff and placing policies and procedures, we've discussed this uh, just a few moments ago, and oftentimes, you know, involving whether it's uh, current uh, law enforcement, if, you know, in the locality that they have that capability to be able to offer that as a service. Otherwise, you know, hiring private security companies to come in and train and develop and, you know, assist with the preparation of policies and procedures. And these are firms that range in size, scope, but uh, there are organizations out there, uh, Titan Gray works with several of them very closely, to be able to create and deliver actionable and accessible policies, procedures, and trainings regarding um, prevention of retail theft and things of that nature. Again, reviewing insurance contracts as well is essentially important, and it's important to do it, if at all possible, on an a priori and not on an ex post facto basis, before, not after, simply because it's always good to uh, be prepared. And then finally, moving into our last topic area for this quick take, you know, it has become ever more clear that crime is on the rise, not just as it affects businesses and places of business and business operations, but also personnel on an individual basis, which nevertheless can and likely would have an impact on the respective businesses for which they work. And so from New York City to LA and in a variety of large metropolitan areas in between, crime, street crime, and specifically crime targeting individuals and and personal property has been on the rise. And so we'll post stats and links and mentions to evidence this claim. But in terms of assaults and robberies, and we'll speak at this point to our home market of New York, these stats are on the rise. And we'll, again, post links to the uh, relative stats we're speaking about here. But so to be quick about this and to speak pointedly in, in, in an actionable way, companies can and should take steps in response to these threats, even though it's perhaps not the company itself that's being threatened, right? And there's a number of reasons why. Number one, disruptions to employee lives are bad, right? And to the extent companies can assist and be in a position to assist, that is good, right? I don't think there's much controversy in that statement. But moreover, disruptions that result out of like personal issues such as like being robbed or mugged or assaulted, God forbid, right? Create workplace disruptions to productivity, right? If someone has to call out, God forbid, they have like a medical injury, etc. You know, if companies can take steps to make their employees safer and to keep them safer, 
this benefits not just the employee, but the firm as well, right? And, you know, lastly, but it's sort of difficult point to, to get through, is employees at certain companies may well be targets because of their employment at certain companies. And so it's not just banks and law firms, for instance, that may, you know, be targets here, right? But really it's large institutions and enterprises that may have their personnel be specifically targeted for robberies. And so why is this, right? So obviously there's just basic correlations like, oh, you know, high paying job, high level of income, likely to have things that are worth robbing. But it it goes a bit more deeply than that, right? So, and it, it has a much more direct impact on business as well. If you think about the things that, let's say, an employee at a law firm or a bank or a tech company may carry with them, among those things it's likely to be is a high-powered and very expensive business laptop, right? A business phone. These items can be wiped, jailbroken to strip them of, of network restrictions and company restrictions and sold on, on a black market. But moreover, we're ignoring the perhaps sophisticated but nevertheless present threat of the compromise of company confidential information as a result of a device being stolen, physically a device being stolen and then broken into. Again, we're talking about here a relatively sophisticated crime, but again, assuming that criminals are only committing unsophisticated crimes has never really been a solid risk management tactic. So anytime a company device gets stolen, right, and regardless in many cases of the duration for which it's been stolen and not yet remotely accessed, if if possible, to secure company confidential information, that information is at risk. And depending on the criticality information, the entire firm may well be at risk, right? So, you know, we're ignoring here also, I just failed to mention, right? We're talking about hospitals and, and doctors. We're talking about HIPAA violations and disclosure of patient confidential information, right? And so you've also got like potential regulatory issues here as well, aside from uh, ordinary like commercial issues. So what are the ways in which we can manage this, right? And again, to try to run through these relatively quickly, um, you know, we've heard anecdotal reports here and there that certain companies are informally advising employees that they're, you know, whether temporarily or on a longer term basis, relaxing uh, a dress code, for instance, right? So it's not to say that if you have two people walking down the street and one's wearing a suit and one's not, that a would-be robber is going to target the guy in a suit every time. That being said, right, like it is not a huge stretch to imagine that the ways in which a person presents themselves by appearance can affect the relative perception of them as a good or not good target for a robbery by a would-be robber. So when we talk about uh, physical security and individual security here, to the extent possible, maintaining a low profile, and if that means adjusting dress codes, you know, avoiding wearing flashy jewelry, etc., is possible and advisable, you know, on a 360 basis, it is uh, an important step that businesses can take to limit the risk of their personnel to enable them to make these choices and modifications. Furthermore, right, and uh, a thing that we, you know, again, run into all the time is the use of company branded items such as bags, right? And so like it is a well-known thing in a variety of markets that the bags that are given to like whether they're duffel bags or tote bags or whatever the case may be, uh, company logo branding, this so-called swag, you know, that's that's handed out to employees as a way in which to promote strong corporate culture and uh, identification with the company and promotion of the brand of the company is, you know, a tradition. And it's an important element of a brand's marketing and 
identity strategy, really, right? But where can that create risk? So if I see, you know, if I'm a robber and I see two duffel bags, each of which I could, you know, rob or uh, steal, and one of them says, I don't know, let's say Goldman Sachs on it, and the other one says nothing on it. If I had to, you know, in a very cursory analysis, right, again, this being an opportunistic crime, think, okay, well, if one of these is likely to have more valuable items in it than another, I'm probably going to go with the bag that is labeled with the name of a company that I recognize as having very, very high brand equity and is known for, you know, paying its employees well, let's say, right? And so the extent to which the deployment of company branding can actually increase threats you know, it's something that needs to be considered in specific instances and in times, perhaps such as this, right, where threats are greater than they normally are. And so on a balanced basis, whereas generally the move for strong company branding is preferable in an instance or, you know, a period of time where crime and the risk of robbery is higher, the value delivered by the deployment of branding may nevertheless be trumped by the risk that accompanies it. Furthermore, and we've discussed this as sort of a motif, and again, you'll start to see themes emerge as to our recommendations because a lot of them are in broad strokes similar in their nuances different, but the broad stroke here is training, right? Isn't it, you know, we feel that in any business environment, it's important for companies, especially with uh, personnel that travel and especially to higher risk jurisdictions to train employees on, you know, maintaining situational awareness, training them on the prevention of, of larceny, whether it's from a hotel room, but, you know, or from even a restaurant, right? If they're handling significant confidential information or other like valuable business material, but also just maintaining uh, awareness and certain tools and techniques that employees can develop and deploy in order to paint themselves out as a harder target or as a less attractive target for a punitive robber. Again, without saying too much here, we likely will deep dive on this topic in an upcoming episode, but the the kind of training that's provided by, you know, former law enforcement and, you know, other personnel organizations, etc. in this area really cannot be overlooked, specifically when businesses have a reasonable understanding that their employees may be targeted by virtue of the fact that they work for that organization. These trainings are essential and vital and really should be a part of every corporate's uh, risk management profile with, as it pertains to employee issues. You know, other things that can be deployed and we've seen deployed with some level of success is, you know, shuttle services, walk to the subway or accompanied commute services, increased security presence, whether they be private or law enforcement officers. And again, having firms work with law enforcement agencies to, you know, attain threat intelligence and generally have an open line of communication, escalation, et cetera, for incidents as they do arise. So, that has been a very long quick take. We hope the content has been helpful. And again, as always, we relish the opportunity to provide this kind of value to you guys. And if there's any comments, questions, etc., please feel free to give us an email. It's info at riskmanagementpodcast.com. And until next time, stay safe out there. The Risk Management Podcast is a production of Titan Grey, Global Risk and Crisis Management and is hosted by Rex Chatterjee. If you found our content helpful, please take a moment to give us a review and to hit the like and subscribe buttons for more great content. To reach us, send an email to info at riskmanagementpodcast.com. This recording is a copyright of Titan Grey LLC with all rights reserved. Thank you for listening. Until next time, 
stay safe out there.